How do you connect fear, faith, and surrender? Welcome to episode 187 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Eric and David. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Eric and David, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope you'll find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Today, I want to share an AA talk about Fear, Faith, and Surrender by Steve L., because it really spoke to me. As you're listening, try replacing his references to alcohol or drugs with your favorite obsession. Maybe it's your alcoholic. Maybe it's control. Maybe it's something else today. And also replacing Alcoholics Anonymous with Al-Anon. When I do that, I can identify a lot more closely with his experience than if I listen to it as the experience of an alcoholic. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Steve. I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank Aaron for that flowery introduction. Uh, 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 I'm almost embarrassed. Uh, 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 and I'll thank the readers. And, uh, Corey, you read just the right amount, brother. Believe me, that was perfect. And... Uh, um, and I'm thrilled to be here and uh, and spend the weekend with you guys. I, I really appreciate being invited, and uh, I've got a lot of friends here, so it's, it's just been uh, a great fun for me. I uh, apologize already for a uh, breach in protocol as I uh, sat in my room as as my dear friend Mike gave his talk. Now I've heard Mike give a lot of talks, but I've never heard him give that talk. And what I know, and since I'm around some folks like Polly and others that speak a lot. You know, a lot of the information is the same, talk to talk, but often the experience is quite different. So I, I know, what I know is that Mike gave a great talk. I mean, what you guys heard was an AA talk. And what I want you to know from a guy that gets to see, see him Monday through Friday is more important than the talk is you got a real uh, uh, feet-on-the-street AA member that's, uh, that's working with others and, uh, and getting his hands dirty in AA and a guy that I've got uh, tremendous admiration for. So... Uh, I told him it's the best ten minutes I'd heard him give so when, <laughs> once I came in a little late. And uh, uh, when invited, uh, and I applaud you guys for, by the way, being here at uh, uh, the 4 o'clock workshop, often referred to as nap time. And uh, uh, and I, I've given up the, the, the moral high ground on anything else that happens this weekend. So if you need to get up and leave, do so. If you get sleepy, doze off. If, uh, uh, just don't worry about it. And uh, we'll have a good time, and, I, and I'm going to be done by 5 o'clock. I said, I don't care when the meeting starts. I'm going to be done at 5, because I know you guys have been doing a lot of listening today. And uh, uh, and everybody knows, I, by the way, I don't even have 45 minutes worth of stuff to talk about, but it usually takes me an hour and a half to do it. And uh, 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 But I'm going to try to uh, uh, be more concise today, uh, if at all possible. And, and when given the workshop topic to... Uh, uh, kind of talk about uh, fear, faith, and surrender. I mean, gosh, th- those are, those are critical, right? I mean, they've certainly been critical to me. And uh, uh, 
I don't know if they come in any particular order, you know, that, that saying fear, faith, and surrender, that, to, that kind of rolls off the tongue a little easier than surrender, faith, and fear, or, or, or jumbling those up in any other order. But uh, uh, I'm just going to kind of start uh, talking about my experience uh, 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 with those and, and share how they have, uh, uh, have and do impact me. Uh, uh, believe me, most of uh, what I talk about is not past tense. There's a lot of life happening today. And, and uh, you know, just because you've been sober a while and, and, and working the steps doesn't mean that when it rains you don't get wet. And uh, 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 so stuff shows up. And, uh, uh, you know, fear, I certainly hadn't had my last bout of fear. Uh, uh, I certainly haven't, uh, uh, you know, been backed into a corner by fear and acted contrary to the man that I want to be because I get afraid sometimes. Uh, I have uh, uh, at times not not been surrendered to the point that I want to be surrendered, you know, it uh, uh, because my good friend, uh, uh, and I know a, a dear friend of uh, Polly's, uh, Cliff Roach out in California. Cliff was at a men's retreat we do a number of years ago, and he said that there were Three things. I think Cliff was sober 36, 38 years at the time, and he said there are three things he had learned for certain and for sure since he had been in AA. He said number one was never does surrender look like a good idea coming upon it. <laughs> number two, never had surrender not served him well. Number three, he could never remember number two the next time. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and that kind of happens to me too. I've got, I've got a whole life of experience that says when I surrender, when I do let go, when I, when I let go absolutely, when I give myself over unreservedly to what you guys asked me to do, what AA suggests I do, never has that not served me well. That's not to say that never has that not been uncomfortable. Never has that not hurt a little bit. Has it not been awkward or painful? But it has never not served me well. But the next time, I'm starting from scratch, you know. I don't always see back into into what was going on. And this faith for a guy that showed up at Alcoholics Anonymous uh, 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 with, with no anchorage to any set of permanent values, as our 12 and 12 said, I couldn't have told you what I believed when I got here. And I certainly didn't have faith in the sense that uh, 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 that I have it today. And I didn't have faith. Here's what I thought I was hearing about faith. Uh, uh, I thought that you guys and before that other places that I had been, uh, uh, that what you were saying is, Steve, if you've got enough faith, if you're faithful, everything will work out all right. And so when things aren't working out all right, I'm not faithful enough. Pray harder. Be faithful. Everything will turn out all right. That's what I thought I was hearing. I don't think that's what you were saying. I think what my experience has been when I have faith, the faith I have is that I'll be all right no matter how things turn out. The faith that I have today says that that the external circumstances of my life don't have to dictate the experience of life that I have. But that requires a level of surrender that I'm often unable or unwilling to muster. And it allows me to meet fear head on in a way that sometimes I'm, again, unwilling or unable to do. But the result has always served me well. It's measurable how it has served me. 
So that surrender, when I, when I show up at Alcoholics Anonymous, I would say, you know, my last drunk, I wasn't, or not my last drunk, my last DUI, my last arrest, you know, I didn't surrender, I was apprehended. <laughs> so, uh, 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 I got, I got the Alcoholics Anonymous under duress. I didn't show up here, uh, anxious and encouraged uh, to hear what you had to say to me and what you were prepared to do for me. And I'll talk about that in more depth tonight. Uh, 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 a few themes will probably be revisited uh, uh, at both, uh, in, in both sessions. But, uh, um, but the first thing you guys had encouraged me to do was explore this relationship I have with alcohol. I mean, uh, uh, alcohol is not an unimportant component of Alcoholics Anonymous. Most of us had to drink a little bit to get here. And that relationship with alcohol was, was the first thing for me to explore. And, and can I, what, and what are my ideas about this? See, what I didn't know, I'll tell you what, what, here's what surrender looked like at one point. I didn't, I didn't, I wouldn't have put that label on it. But I had this last DUI that I've had so far in March of 1988. And, uh, 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 I hit a Brentwood, Tennessee police officer going the wrong way down the street, and uh, that will get you arrested in Brentwood. And uh, uh, um, and and I, they were trying to send me to jail for a year, and I was scared to death to go to jail for a year. And and uh, again, I'll go into a little more detail tonight. But so fear—that was the greatest fear that I had felt up to that point in my life. I think the fear of going to jail because I'm not a tough guy. I just didn't think I would, you know, fare well in that environment. And uh, um, so I made a decision to not drink for a year. They gave me probation and gave me some jail time, at, you know, weekends in jail, and gave me, uh, um, uh, remanded me if I would go to treatment. This was the conditions of the plea bargain. So I'm now not going to drink. Now, not not because I decided that I was going to quit forever, but just to avoid the consequences, because they said if I violated this probation, I'd go to jail for a year. Well, I began drinking a little bit, you know, so I changed from not going to drink at all to going to be really careful when I drink and uh, uh, not let that happen again. And about six months uh, uh, into this year of probation, I'm driving home one night, and, and I'm just as drunk as I can get, apparently, and uh, uh, and I, I, I kind of passed out, went over into the uh, uh, shoulder of the road, and it, and it popped my car back up onto the to the interstate, and it and it just struck me sober almost. I mean, I woke up and I go, whoa, and and, and I'm I'm just as clear as a bell, and I'm trying to get home. I said, God, just let me get home without you know getting pulled over because I'm go to jail if I do. And I pulled into my driveway finally when I got home, and I had a thought I had never had before. I spent a lot of time either going to not drink for self-imposed periods of time or drink differently or, or, or control and enjoy my drinking. That night in my driveway, what came to me was I'll always drink. I can't not drink. You can't scare me out of not drinking. So there was a surrender. I surrendered to my hopeless condition. And really what it did was free me up to drink. Because I had surrendered to the fact that I cannot not drink. 
So I drank with an abandon that last six months in a way that, that perhaps I hadn't before because I had given up any attempt to control. So there's a, a portion of surrender. You surrender to the problem. So I get here and you guys begin to introduce me to alcoholism as it's described in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, as your experience had been with alcoholism. And I listen and I'm beginning to think I got what you got. Not just the escapades that you were engaged in, but what I'm hearing, how you're describing it, the, the, the internal condition, the spiritual malady of alcoholism is something I think I've got. And pretty soon, and you, and you introduced me to the, uh, idea of an allergy to alcohol, this physical component that I knew nothing about before I got to AA. And you, uh, uh, you explained to me the mental obsession that, that accompanies alcoholism in a way that I'd never heard it. See, in the book, uh, uh, in, in our book, in, in uh, the chapter to, uh, uh, to the employers, it says, when dealing with an alcoholic, there may be a natural annoyance <laughs> that someone could be so weak, stupid, and irresponsible. And see, that's what I thought I was. And by the way, that's what most of the people around me thought I was. Weak, stupid, and irresponsible. I didn't know about a physical allergy. I didn't know about the, the mental obsession. I didn't know that when I take a drink, I'm unpredictable and that it is not necessarily a character issue. It doesn't mean I don't have bad character, by the way. It just means that the, the allergy don't know whether I'm a good guy or a bad guy, and it don't care. And, and, and to, to shorten the process for, for today's time constraints, I surrendered, I became convinced at depth that I got alcoholism. I surrendered to the problem. But surrendering to the problem does not solve the problem. You know, surrendering to the problem just helps me understand why things are going this way. But the next primary surrender that has to happen for a guy like me is I've got to surrender to the solution. I've got to give myself over to the process that Alcoholics Anonymous suggests. There's a story of the guy named Jim in our book. And uh, right after uh, uh, the discussion, you know, the guy that gets all the press is, uh, 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 or, or actually Fred is the guy whose story, Jim gets all the press for pouring the whiskey in his milk, you know. And he deserves, by the way, some press for that. But, uh, uh, but Fred, in that same chapter, is a story that I really identify with because it says, by all accounts, he was a pretty good guy, personable, had a business, well-liked by a lot of people. Now, I might be confused, but I sort of think that's how I showed up here, you know, from a, from a distance and, and, you know, right after a shower. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but Jim, two guys, but Jim, you know, Jim is thinking this about himself as he's laying in a detox center, and I'm capable of that. And uh, uh, and two guys from uh, from AA, you know, come by to visit with him, and uh, uh, they acquaint him as best they can with their alcoholism, giving him the opportunity to identify. And he was uh, he was sincerely grateful for them coming by. He was uh, 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 stimulated by the conversation and the information that they shared with him. 
and uh, and and he and he thanked them and and he made a decision. And his exactly the quote is, "I decided to stop drinking altogether." So he surrendered to this problem. They they let him know you're not going to be able to drink at all. It's just not going to work well for you if you've got what we've got. And he surrendered to that idea, and he made up he made up his mind to stop drinking altogether. He says, and he went on his business about you know that way. And after a while, then you guys all know the the funny line that says, you know, we heard no more of Fred for a while, right? You know, Fred went went to Washington. Business went well. He's walking in. He decides to have a a drink uh, before dinner, a highball, as it were, which is not like a real drink, apparently. And uh, 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 and and then he remembers having a few more. And then he remembers, you know, coming to in New York uh, a couple of days later with a friendly cab driver, who's the man I've always wanted to interview because I think the cab driver has the interesting conversation, you know, story to share with us. But uh uh. uh and then these guys come back to visit Fred. And they lay out this, this program of action, while entirely practical, would mean he would have to set aside, surrender, several lifelong conceptions. He's got to, he's got to surrender his armor. He's got to surrender the ideas and plans and thoughts and strategies that he had implemented. And he said, I made up my mind to go through with the process. And the drink problem seemed to be removed as it in fact turned out to be. Making up my mind to quit drinking is noble and encourageable, but it has a limited shelf life if I don't follow it by making up my mind to follow through with the process, by not just surrendering to the problem, but surrendering to the solution. Can I surrender my ideas when I get to how it works? And it says some of us tried to hold on to our old ideas. And the result was nil till we let go absolutely. Now, to me, that sounded like you were telling me I had no good ideas before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I took issue with that. I talked to my I was about a year and a half sober living in Richmond, Virginia, and talking to my sponsor, Joe, about that. I said, Joe, that. I showed up at AA with some damn good ideas. And uh, he said, Steve, he, he, he said, it doesn't mean you never had a good idea before you got to AA. He said, I believe you've got some good ideas. He said, I have not heard any of them, but, uh, uh, but I believe you've got some good ideas. But what's being suggested, are you willing to set them down? Are you willing to take all your old ideas? All of them, the good, he said, the problem is you can't tell the good ones from the bad ones. They co-mingle. Are you willing to set all your ideas down? It doesn't mean they don't have value. It doesn't mean they're all wrong. It doesn't mean that you're casting them aside forever. But if you're unwilling to set them down, to, to unload them, then you cannot embrace any new ideas. Then you are limited by the very ideas that show, that you showed up here with. That you can only plan with, those are the only tools you have. He said, so I'm just saying, not throw them away, set them down. Surrender yourself to the process of Alcoholics Anonymous, to the actions of these steps. And the good ideas will find their way back. The truth will find its way home. But I've got to let go. I've got to realize that the way I'm seeing the world is perhaps not the way the world is. 
got to realize that 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 seeing things through through the prism of my fear and my lack of faith will limit my ability to move forward. And Alcoholics Anonymous are in life in general. But if I make this surrender, if I if I if I land here and, and and you know I'm making a surrender at whatever level I can. Here's what I believe for me. I don't believe that surrender on me is an intellectual exercise. I don't think I, I don't think I surrender. I think surrender happens to me. I am surrendered. I am beat into a state of reasonableness, as our book says. The twelve twelve says, "Why all this talk about hitting bottom?" Because why would I embrace the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous if I had any other plan? Our 12 steps says willingness is the key. Willingness is the key. So I can be afraid and willing. I can lack faith but be willing. I can say I don't think any of this is going to work but be willing. Because I looked up willingness. I was 18 years sober before I looked up the word willingness. You don't have to wait that long. Among other things, among other things, it said, willingness is doing that which I would not do as a matter of course. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. There is nothing AA has asked me to do that I was just about to do before I got here. <laughs> is there anything in that you go, ooh, you know, I was just going to try that. Yeah, yeah. I've got four of those steps scribbled down on a cocktail napkin somewhere. It's when I was thinking. No, everything that AA asked me to do as when I showed up here was counterintuitive. It was contrary to my character because my character is defective. My character is defective because my true nature is blocked by my defects, by that character which is defective that produces fear and lack of faith and pride and ego and jealousy and envy in amounts that, that are beyond normal proportions. And they, and they cause me to respond to the world differently than someone that's not as burdened, perhaps, by some of those. Insanity is described, again, back in our book, and this is, this is after Jim pours the whiskey in his milk and before Fred takes a drink. It describes insanity as what can this lack of proportion or the ability to think straight be called but insanity. I have gone through life with a lack of proportion, I have responded disproportionately to the events of my life. You make a sideways glance at me, and I'm carrying resentment for six or seven years because I've built a backstory to that look. <laughs> I've blown it out of proportion. And I'll tell you the flip side of that. I under-respond to many things. I will under-respond to the hurt that I might cause, a, a flippant remark that I might make to my wife that is sarcastic and hurtful. And I don't see it because I'm insensitive. I'm desensitized. I don't feel that because my character is defective. It can't get through. It can't penetrate the fruits of that defective tree but that's not so now i'm here so now i'm, I'm surrendered i go okay what, what am i going to do and, and it's right there in we agnostics once i says if, if we hope we've made clear the distinction between the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic and i go you have and it says if, if when you honestly want to you find you can't stop entirely or if when drinking you have little control of the amount you take you're probably alcoholic i am 
And he says, if so, you may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience can conquer. Damn. <laughs> I was with you right up to there. Oh. What else you got? We got nothing else. You know, I think that, that uh, uh, it may have been uh, uh, Chuck that spoke to it, or maybe it's in the workshop this morning, because we do say several times in, in our book that, that uh, uh, in how it works, it says that, that uh, uh, following are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. You know, page 164, it says uh, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. By the way, have you met the guy that realized he knew only a little? I, he's not in any of the meetings I go to. But uh, 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 that's a, even the, the the biggest big book thumpers somehow think that's a misprint. And uh, 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 but so our book is meant to be suggestive only. But here's the thing: so so our steps are suggested, our books is suggestive only. But here's the thing. It's the only suggestion we got. <laughs> AA doesn't have another suggestion. So it's saying we suggest this, and we suggest if you don't want this, you might want to look somewhere else because this is all we got. <laughs> it's not about you go to a fish restaurant and order steak. They go, hey, man, we're, we're a fish restaurant. <laughs> Down the street is a great steak place. I'm not even saying that people going somewhere else to do something else is a bad or a wrong thing. All I'm saying is we know what we are. This is what we do. There's only one solution in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a power greater than myself which will solve my problem. The steps are the pathway to the power. The steps are what clear the brush between me and the power that let the sunlight in. The power's there all along. I don't go searching for the power. I'm, make, I'm, make, I'm making the power available. I'm availing myself of the power. Through the process that's clearing those things away from me that allow that to happen. But I'm stuck. I got no faith. I got no belief really in anything when I get to AA. So what am I going to do? What I did was when you'd get up to say the Lord's Prayer and stuff, I would uh, step away from the circle and not pray. I would uh, uh, kind of stare at the ceiling. I was earnest. I was really, I wasn't trying to, I don't, you know, I don't know what I was trying to do at a few days and then a few months sober, but that's what I was doing. Some of it was a big look at me, be different kind of guy. But some of it was earnest because I said I wasn't just going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya with the rest of the campers because that's what you guys were doing. And a guy who had uh, uh, been my counselor in treatment was at one of these meetings and where I was backed away from that. He said, Steve, what's that all about, man? And I said, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I, I, was, I was serious. I, I was being as honest as I could. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't know what I believe. And uh, uh, he had heard this little fourth and fifth step I had done in treatment. And I'll, again, speak to it tonight. But I talked about infidelities in my marriage. And I talked about multiple car wrecks where people were injured and hospitalized. I talked about being drunk at the hospital when my daughter was born. I talked about stealing time and money from uh, the family business I was engaged in. And, and he had heard all that, so he said, but uh, hypocrisy, that's, that's where you draw the line, huh? He, uh, uh, that's impressive, he said. And, uh, uh, he said, I got good news and bad news for you. I said, you know, 
I'll play. And uh, what's the bad news? The bad news is hypocrisy is way down your list of problems. And you might ought to address them in the order in which they will kill your ass. And what's the good news? The good news is there's room for another hypocrite in Alcoholics Anonymous. We've got an opening, you know. And see, that is good news. That means, so, and what he was, what he was doing was allowing me to engage in something that I did not yet believe in. And I can't, how can I believe in something that I've had no experience with? So how do I get the experience? I've got to overcome fear. I've got to overcome pride. I've got to overcome this, this predisposed, this predisposition and this closed mind. Isn't it amazing that a guy like me would draw that line? Because before I got to AA, I was the most open-minded guy you would ever meet. Unbelievably open-minded. I'd meet a complete stranger who would who would hold up a, a, a bag of something or a bottle of pills and say, you know, he says, if you'll give me X amount of money, I'll give this to you. And I go, what will it do? And he said, well, if you take it, it'll either... This will keep you up. This will put you down. This will make you see some stuff. And I go, okay. Yeah, give me one of each, you know. And, uh, uh, I'm, hey, I'm open to it. I'll try. I'm buying stuff from cab drivers. I'm going to part of town. I mean, quality control is not a big issue here. I'm not saying, have you got, have you got some customers I could call and, and, uh, and get references? Uh, uh, I'm just going, hell, I'll try. I'm like Mikey in the, you know, in the cereal commercial. I'm open-minded because I'm so uncomfortable in the way I feel that I'm willing to try whatever you're putting out. And I get to AA and you guys say, hey, how about trying to pray? And I go, oh, bullshit. <laughs> That's where I draw the line. And it's almost, it's silly when I look back at it, I'm embarrassed. But I don't know it going through it. I don't know it going through it. How am I going to find a faith that works, a faith that's real, until I risk a little something, until I get in the game, until I put my chips on the table, until I take those things that are most dear and important to me? Well, you start with some little stuff. I started by holding hands and saying a prayer I didn't believe in. It made me feel a part of what you guys were doing. I nearly said nothing major happened. What I would say is what happened was almost imperceptible to me. I think huge things are happening around me all the time, and my awareness is so blocked I don't see it, I don't feel it. And what again, what's happening with these steps is I'm getting rid of those things that begin to let me see and let me feel. In fact, isn't that what our 12 and 12 says, every every genuine spiritual experience has in common. It says there may be as many spiritual experiences as people who have them. This whole room may be full. They're full of one-of-a-kind spiritual experiences in terms of how we describe them. But he says the legitimate ones will have three things in common. I can do, feel, and believe that which I could not do, feel, and believe on my unaided will and resources alone. Man, I could do some stuff and not do some stuff I couldn't do. I feel stuff I could not feel. And today I believe things that were unbelievable before I got here. Unbelievable. 
I believe things about you, and I believe things about me, good things about me, that were unbelievable before I got here. Fear, when we start in our inventory process, uh, uh, resentment gets all the press. Cause, cause that's where, that's where we start and we line up. It says it kills more alcoholics than anything else. So it, it probably deserves the press. So I guess percentage wise, resentment is the number one offender. But most of those resentments, as we explore them, we see many, if not all, are fear driven. That fear plays a role somewhere in there. But the fear inventory, looking at fear, that's that was the the fear inventory has been the biggest change in my recovery when I got the AA. I was six years sober before I did a fear inventory, and I didn't know I hadn't. I wasn't resisting doing one. I just couldn't find it. The people I I I don't blame anybody else. I'm pretty sure that that I was given good direction, but I had not done one. And I heard some men walking through this one day, and I realized I had not done what they had done. And it was 1996. My sobriety date's June 30th, 1989. This was March of 1996. So that might actually be seven years if you're a mathematician. Uh, uh, you make me feel good, Liz. It's a, a, yeah. You bite on every punchline, and. Uh, uh, but I didn't know I had, so I've got, I've got it today. I show it to men all the time. Fear. Fear will stop me in my tracks. Fear will stop me from having a relationship with you. Fear will stop me from having a relationship with God, and I don't recognize it for what it is. And I'm often wrong about what I'm afraid of. When I started that fear inventory, and I began to write those things. My my wife and daughter and I, we were going through a, a, a challenging financial time, as we would do a couple of more times. And as we, you know, I, I'd love to live long enough to have more more and more problems. But uh, uh, but I began to write down my fear around this uh, this financial ruin that seemed uh, impending. And uh, uh, and I said, oh, I didn't want my wife and daughter to have to suffer for my mistakes. And I did. And my daughter looked like she would have to move out of the, the school that she was uh, uh, going to to maybe go to a different school and in a different part of town. And, and I said, I don't want her to have to be embarrassed and, uh, 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 and, 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 and again, be hurt in that way. And, and we were going to have to move out of, you know, out of this house into this house and from this part of town to that part of town. And, and, and I didn't want them to have to suffer from that. And all of that was true. All of that was true. But when I dug a layer deeper, I didn't want to be the guy. I didn't want to, to carry the heat. I didn't want it to be my fault. I didn't want to be the guy that did that to them. And then I looked a little deep. And the bigger truth was I didn't want you to look at me like the guy that let that happen. And my biggest fear was what I think you think. My biggest fear is what I think you think. And here's, you know, my sponsor said, Steve, here's the deal, brother. You're not who you think you are. You're not who they think you are. And you're sure as hell not who you think they think you are. 
And see, what I realize, I've been living most of my life, living my life based on what I think you think. What I think you will think about this. How I think you will respond to this. What I'm afraid the conclusion you will draw about this. And I'm wrong about what you think. So I've been aiming at the wrong target all my life. So Alcoholics Anonymous is telling me not to respond to the personality, not to respond to what I think you think, but to be guided by principle. Not what it feels like on me, not what I think it's going to look like on me, but doing that next right thing in spite of what I think you will think about it. When we say, at least when I say in AA, what other people think about us is none of our business, it doesn't mean that I don't care what you think. I do. I want to be liked and appreciated and respected and and, and a whole list of other adjectives, if I could think of them. I'd, I'd love that. But what I'm less prone to less prone to do today is to take actions based on that, to compromise myself to try to win that accolade or that, that affection. What you tell me to do is act on principle, and the conclusions you draw about me are out of my hands. I'm not in charge of the conclusions. That fear. My wife and I were, uh, uh, we went through, you know, we were, you'll hear again more tonight, but we, we were... Uh, married, uh, drunk on a boat in Mexico. We uh, 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 were together seven years before sobering up. Uh, 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 she was not pushing me to get sober. She would like, she wanted me to keep drinking. She would prefer me to drink with her rather than some of the places and with some of the people I was drinking with. Her last words to me were, "No matter what, don't stop drinking." Then we got sober, and we had we had a hard time figuring out who we were in this marriage. And, uh, and at about, uh, 10 years sober, we're about to, we're about to split up and I'm going to AA and she's sober, but she's not in AA, so clearly I think she's the problem. Because <laughs> I am now fully spiritually evolved and, uh, uh, you guys are telling me how good I'm doing. I just didn't know AA graded on such a curve, you know, and, uh, uh, we do that to just make ourselves feel better about each other and, uh, uh, but we are finally she but but I am you know one of the things that is happening, I'm feeling things I hadn't felt, I'm seeing things I hadn't seen, and what I recognize is there was an opportunity for us to have a relationship, a deeper, a different relationship than we had. There's more to be had in this relationship. I still don't quite know how to do it, but I knew there was more to be had. But she says to me one day, she said, What do you want this to look like? You know? You're complaining to Steve, what do you want? And I said, I want us to be honest and open and transparent and emotionally intimate. And I'd like you to go first, please. (laughs) Because I'm afraid to live that way. I'm afraid to give myself over. I'm afraid to let go absolutely without knowing how it's going to work out. You guys are teaching me more and more, both through your actions, through our conversations, through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, that if I will truly let go absolutely, put down my attachment to things, attachment is the source of my discomfort. 
Attachment means I have attached myself to an outcome or a thing or a circumstance or a person. And I've determined unless this circumstance, thing, or person is exactly like I need it to be, I can't be okay, so I've limited my opportunity for happiness. And I spend all my time afraid that it won't work out the way that I need it to. What you're telling me to do is let go absolutely. Let go of the attachment that Alcoholics Anonymous is not about this external things. My problems are internal. The surrender is internal. The surrender is, surrender by the way is not always a passive action. Surrender is like I think what was said today after I surrender my will in that third step that, that, that surrender is demonstrated by action. Or I haven't surrendered. I've said I've surrendered and there's some relief in saying it. I mean, it happens to me all the time now. I'll be home on a Saturday night eating my second sleeve of Oreos going, damn, I, you know, I, I'm getting fat. I need to give up these. Well, you know what? Monday, on Monday, we are doing better on Monday. And I'm, I'm, I'm believing it. I'm fully committed. There's another box of Oreos, uh, uh, that obviously have to be eaten before Monday. <laughs> and all I've done is given myself permission to eat the other box of Oreos and feel less guilt about it because of what I'm going to do Monday. But Monday comes, I don't do anything different. Except go store buy some more Oreos. <laughs> can I really, can I surrender at depth? Can I admit complete defeat? Can I truly set down my plan and adopt this plan of these 12 steps and act on principle rather than on, on my fears and my lack of faith? Can I turn, can I turn to that God of my understanding, which I'm going to bet would sound different than many of yours and vice versa, how I experience this power in my life, but am I willing to trust the power? And again, not trust that everything's that, that that if I, you know, rub my feet together and pray hard that 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 I'll get the job, you know, or I won't get in trouble. Can I find a way to be comfortable and whole in this day right now as I am and as you are? Can I live my life? Can I embrace this day? Can I live a life? That's what I'll close with a story in a minute that that I, that illustrates my life in so many ways. But Bill, you know, in one of Bill's writings, he gives a, 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 he talks about prudence. He says, instead of fear, he says, prudence is reasonable concern without worry. Prudence is buying some insurance. Prudence is looking both ways before I cross the street. You know, when I head out of here tomorrow, I will look both ways before I pull out into the traffic. If you come back on on uh, Monday and I'm still stuck there, that has turned into a paralyzing fear. That is an unnatural fear. That is limiting me. But hey, I want to look both ways and then go about my business. I'm supposed to pay attention to life and act on that. I am going to go ahead and end since I said I, I would quit by five. Uh, um, Howard P. out in uh, uh, Gilbert, Arizona, Howard tells uh, a wonderful story that I've loved for years. And uh, uh, But as I tell Howard, I've improved upon his story. Uh, 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 he doesn't think so, by the way. But uh, 
But in Howard's story, and, and, and I don't, he's a wonderful storyteller, so I can't capture, uh, uh, everything that he's able to do. But basically, as he's talking about fear, he will describe someone like me who might live life as if they were walking across a frozen lake. And, and with every step, afraid that the ice is going to crack and that, that I will fall through and drown. And that's a long, that's a tiring, exhausting, awful way to live. That with each step and each day, each thing I'm doing, living in fear that, that I'm not going to be held up, that I'm not going to be okay, no matter how things work. And in my story, I tell Howard, there are two men that are walking across the frozen lake. One, afraid with every step that the ice is going to crack and he's going to fall through and drown. And the other is walking with absolute assurance that the ice is going to hold. And halfway across the lake, sure enough, the ice breaks and they both drown. But the guy who thought the ice was going to hold him had a much nicer walk up until then. (laughs) The outcome was not changed. It's the experience of the walk. Now, I want to be prudent. I want to check the ice. But I'm choosing, I'm surrendering my will to the extent that I can. And I'm embracing my faith at the level that I can. And both of those ebb and flow on a given day. But I surrender, I embrace the faith so I can walk without the debilitating fear and I can enjoy the day I'm living in. I can enjoy the walk. We say all the time in Alcoholics Anonymous, this is not a destination. It's a journey. Let's enjoy the journey. Let's enjoy the walk. And the great news here for me is that you never ask me to walk alone. Let's walk together. Let's help someone else who's on the bank, struggling, afraid, and say, come on. It held me. It will hold you. In fact, I'll come back and we'll walk together. Thank you guys for walking with me. Great to be here this weekend. What did you hear there? You can call and leave us a voicemail, 734-707-8795. You can email feedback at com and let, let us know what you heard in, in Steve's talk. I heard some things. I heard about surrendering to the problem and how that's different from surrendering to the solution. And I think about what got me into the doors of Al-Anon was surrendering to the problem, understanding that I was powerless to get my wife sober. And I didn't know what else I could do. So I had surrendered to the problem, but I didn't have a solution. And then I came in and I started hearing about things like higher power, inventory, amends. And those sounded really scary. And I I really didn't, didn't think that was for me. 
But as I continued to come to meetings and as I read the literature and as I wanted more and more to have what the people who were already there seemed to have, I started to be ready to say, well, I guess I'll try it. And in surrendering to the solution, I found eventually recovery. I heard about understanding the disease of alcoholism, understanding that it is a disease, as he puts it, an allergy. That's how the book puts it. And how that changes my relationship with the alcoholic in my life and how that changes my relationship with the disease. He talks about doing a fear inventory. And I found myself at a point several years into my recovery where I had some fears that were really, in some cases, debilitating and and blocking me from being able to live life with serenity and with, with happiness. And I had to do an inventory on those fears. I had to, to find out what they were, where they were coming from, and then I could practice the later steps in relieving myself of those fears. And I really liked I really liked his discussion of the difference between who you are, who you think you are, who they think you are, and who you think they think you are. Because I also lived a great part of my life and still to some extent do worrying about the person that I think they think I am. Yeah. You know, that's not a fun, that's not a fun place to be. It's something I'm still working on. So, like I said, Steve's, Steve had a lot to say to me, and I really enjoyed his talk. I hope you did, too. After a short break, we'll continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. Also, this week, I listened to another podcast. I've been listening, just started listening to this podcast called Song Exploder, where musicians talk about how they created a particular song. And the most recent one that I listened to is uh, Solange talking about how she created her song Cranes in the Sky. And I will put a link to the Song Exploder podcast in the show notes at therecoveryshow.com slash 187. I'm going to start with some lyrics here. I tried to drink it away. I tried to put one in the air. I tried to dance it away. I tried to change it with my hair. I ran my credit card bill up, thought a new dress would make it better. I tried to work it away, but that just made me even sadder. I tried to keep myself busy. I ran around in circles. Think I made myself dizzy. I slept it away. I sexed it away. I read it away. I mean, well, obviously the first line, I tried to drink it away, just grabbed me and and brought me in to the song. She explained that she wrote this song about the ways in which she tried to quiet her busy mind. Just so much going on in her head and and the way she wanted to get it get it out. But to me, it applies to just about anything in our lives that we don't like about ourselves that's going on, that, that we want to cover up, that we want to hide, that we want to escape from, and about how it doesn't work. It doesn't work for us. She really had a lot to say. And, you know, what it's about for her is not what it's about for me and probably not what it's about for you. I recommend the song, and if you're really interested in how it came to be, the story behind the song, I recommend you to the 
podcast episode of Song Exploder. So what's going on in my life this week? How am I using recovery in my life this week? I was traveling this week for business. The story of acceptance. Acceptance is a huge part of travel for me because almost nothing works the way I actually want it to. So the story starts the week before when I'm making plane reservations. I can't get reservations. I'm, I'm, I'm flying to New Jersey so there's there's a number of options of airports for me. And in particular, Newark tends to work the best for where I was going because I can get a train directly from the airport. And I also wanted to attend an event in New York City one day. And so Newark would be very convenient for that too because then I could just leave straight from the city to, to Newark Airport. As I tend to roll, I delayed in actually making the reservations and ended up that flying to Newark was going to be very expensive, particularly if I wanted to attend the event in New York. And so I looked at my other option, which is the Philadelphia airport, because the place I was going is about halfway between them. And it was a lot cheaper. And yeah, I would have to rent a car, but it would still be a lot cheaper. So there we go. Acceptance. Okay, I'm not going to be able to attend the event in New York City. Sadness, but it was an option. It was optional anyway. And then there's the travel part. I woke up Tuesday morning. We were having freezing rain here. My wife had volunteered to drive me to the airport, and I know she doesn't like to drive in the dark, and she doesn't like to drive in in hazardous driving conditions, which yeah, freezing rain definitely qualifies for. There is another option for me to get to the airport. There's a bus. I looked at it, and there was there was a bus that would leave in time for me to get to the airport. And I said, okay, I'm going to take the bus. So change of plans, but no big deal. I can do it. Acceptance again. And it was it worked out really well. And I let the pro worry about how slippery the road was or wasn't. And I, w- I got to the airport. I took, got my flight, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know how I would have reacted to this before Al-Anon, but I'm pretty sure it, there would have been a lot more sort of wailing and gnashing of teeth, if you will, about how things weren't weren't working out the way I, I just absolutely the way I wanted them to. It was a good trip, and uh, I don't think much much more about how I use recovery there. Yesterday, my step meeting, we are talking about the traditions on the third Saturday of the month, and we had tradition one. The group conscience of of the meeting decided that we would align the tradition meeting with the months. We actually started doing it a little over a year ago, I think in September. And so by the time we got to January, I think it was tradition four. And we missed a month once, and then it was like, what? Uh, so we decided just to line it up with the with the month of the year because it's easier. So we were talking about tradition one, which states our common welfare should come first, Personal progress for the greatest number depends upon unity. My my reflection on it uh, had two parts from the, the reading in the book Paths to Recovery. It says, Sometimes, however, members consciously or unconsciously disregard the traditions. In such instances, each of us has a responsibility to remind them of the traditions in a caring, loving way. When making such a suggestion, it helps if we remember that the guidelines are for group harmony. And that tells me that 
when I'm in a group, whether it's my Al-Anon meeting, my family, or a work group, that when a member of the group does something that is not in alignment with our traditions or our norms of behavior, and I feel that I need to remind them of the way in which we have agreed to be together, that I should do so, as it says, in a, in a caring, loving way. You know, essentially, don't just, like, yell at them, right? Which, hey, that's what I want to do, isn't it? Um, I'm like the rule guy. You know, you got to follow the rules, and you don't follow the rules like I'm going to tell you about it. And this reminds me that the rules or our norms of behavior are there so that we work together for group harmony and not because it's a rule. I was tested with that actually this morning in the seventh grade group. We were actually having the kids do a, a little bit of a fear inventory this morning. And there was a lot of side chatter. There was a lot of crosstalk. There was a lot of interrupting. And I'm grateful that I wasn't running the, the group discussion. One of the other teachers was running it. He was, he was good about saying, uh, you know, hey, David, I really want to hear what Beth has to say kind of thing. Could, could you let us hear her? Rather than, hey, shut up. <laughs> Which is what I was thinking. I wasn't saying it, and I knew it was not a good thing to say, but I have to model myself on on, on what he does so that it, when I'm in the position of leading a discussion like that, I can do it calmly and gently uh, as he did. The other thing that I picked up on was in one of the, the shares, member shares, in again in the book, Paths to Recovery. Today I know that for unity to exist in my family or in my group, all of us must have a voice. No one voice is more or less important than anyone else's. I have a responsibility to listen, to share, and to accept. Which just reminds me that I need to be a listener, that I need to let that implies that I have some control, but I need to let others in my group share their thoughts and contribute to our discussion. I'm not the dictator. I'm not the boss. I'm just a member of the group, a member of the family, a member of the work group. So a couple of, of good things for me to, to remember came out of that uh, discussion of the tradition yesterday. So if you want to leave us feedback. If you want to comment on Steve's talk, if you want to contribute to any upcoming topics or, or suggest a topic, you can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Or you can use the voicemail button on the website to do that from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, your questions, your topic suggestions. And all the information about how to contact us is also on the website at therecoveryshow.com slash contact. You can also find show notes for each episode at therecoveryshow.com. Some of you did write in, so let's, let's hear what you have to share. Deborah writes about episode on boundaries, which was number 103, and you can always go to therecoveryshow.com slash 103 to find that. She writes, Hi, Spencer and Maria. I just listened to the podcast on boundaries. I was excited to hear an explanation of something I've started doing recently. 
I would also hide from things I needed to do, but recently I've realized how stressful that is. So now I see something that stresses me. Unwash dishes, dirty carpet, or clothes, and now I stop and take care of those things. Seems simple, but I realize that the comfort and peace and serenity of having these things taken care of outweighs the reasons I was procrastinating. It's exciting to me because it's the first time in my life that I've responded to my surroundings when I felt uncomfortable. My past coping skills were to ignore and make excuses as to why I was waiting to them. I live an hour away from the closest Al-Anon meeting, and it meets only one day a week. Your show is a lifeline for me. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your experience, strength, and hope. Sincerely, Deborah. And and thank you, Deborah, for your sharing. Maybe you've connected with somebody else. So we got a voicemail from Dave. Hi, Spencer. This is Dave. I was just listening to your show about expectations uh, with Eric. And I just want to say thank you. I really enjoyed it. Very profound. Uh, very very effective uh, for me. thing is, I was wondering if it's possible to get a copy of Eric's um, sponsor's letter uh, that he wrote. I just thought that would be really great if you're going to let me share that at a, uh, a meeting here in uh, the Washington State. So anyways, if that's possible, I would really appreciate it. I have asked Eric if it would be possible for me to share that on the website. An anonymous listener wrote, Hi there. I love your podcast. I just have a question. I have yet to find an Al-Anon group that fits into my schedule, but until then I have found therapy to help me with my emotionally neglectful childhood due to parental and family alcoholism. Since I have been in therapy this last couple of years, I have learned so much. It's amazing and exciting and eye-opening, but I find myself frustrated as well. As I continue to get mentally healthier, I am noticing and becoming almost oversensitive to all the unhealthiness I am now recognizing in family and friends. I find myself having almost no patience with the toxicity that I now recognize, and I feel like I might be pushing people away. They even noticed a change in me and ask where this voice of mine suddenly came from. I know it's not my business to fix or change them, but how do I keep my mental health in check while trying to maintain some kind of relationship with the multiple unhealthy people that have been close to me in my life? I know when people become sober, usually they will tell the people that are close to them to make them aware of the life change. Do people do the same thing when they start therapy or Al-Anon so their loved ones can know why they are seeing the changes they might be seeing? Also, do you think you might be doing an episode that covers how parents in recovery might deal with boundaries when it comes to their own small children having relationships with their alcoholic grandparents? Wow, lots of questions in there. I feel like we've done some episodes that that might address some of this um, episode about boundaries, I think is, is relevant here. That was number 103. I'm trying to think. Detachment, detachment, that's the one I'm looking for. Yeah, um, you might want to listen to episode 12 on detachment. That for me is what I think really helped me to continue to live with my loved one's alcoholism as it was still active. You know, I had found recovery, but she was still drinking. And detachment was a huge tool for me there. So you might look at that. And I've just had actually another suggestion from Eric about an episode on parenting, although coming at it from a different perspective than your question. How do you deal with boundaries 
when it comes to your small children having relationships with alcoholic grandparents? And that's, that's a, that again, that's a question I haven't had to face. So if you're listening and you have something, you have some experience, strength, and hope to share about what boundaries you set on your children being with their alcoholic grandparents. And I assume in this case, you mean alcoholic, not in recovery, maybe alcoholic, still active. Love to hear from you about your experience, strength, and hope because I don't have any. Edward left a comment on episode 128, which was titled Leadership and which covered the Al-Anon concepts of service, numbers 8, 9, and 10. He asks, can anyone direct me to find concentrated information about double-headed management? Thank you very much. I shared a link to a discussion of the AA 12, 12, and 12, some commentary about that concept there. Also links to the three Al-Anon books that talk about the concepts of service, which are how Al-Anon works, Paths to Recovery, and Reaching for Personal Freedom. I thought I would read just a paragraph out of how Al-Anon works, a couple paragraphs out of how Al-Anon works about double-headed management. Starting in the middle of the second paragraph on page 309. If the board of trustees was not given the authority to make the final decision, and if the committees disagree, they could issue conflicting directives creating double-headed management. And then um, I think this paragraph really talks, describes it. In all areas of our lives, we need to be clear about what our responsibilities are. Limits to one's power should be clearly spelled out in the description of a job. With an organization composed of many people, there must be also a clear understanding of who has the final authority. Double-headed management can happen when no one is in charge or when two people or two groups are charged with the overlapping responsibility and authority. So double-headed management is is when nobody's clear on who actually has the, the final authority, maybe, or whether we're two different people both have authority over something or where nobody has authority and then people step in to fill the vacuum and it's still not clear who's who's actually in charge. So that's my short description. Got a, an email. Hi, Spencer. Thank you so much for your recovery show. It's been a lifesaver. I'm visiting New Zealand as my daughter was having a baby. To find Al-Anon meetings here in Wellington was no success. So in my desperation, I went online to see what I could find for my recovery. And I came across your podcast. I've been listening every day since then, and you have kept me sane. Thank you for all the work you do. I'll be back in California in the first week of March. Thanks once again. Regards. I'm glad that we can be there for you. and It is why we do this. Another email. Thank you is all I can say. I've been listening to your podcast for some months, and I get so much out of them. I had a sister who was an alcoholic, and for a long time, several years in fact, I didn't know about her drinking until I was married to an alcoholic. This podcast brings home how I am feeling right now. I've come to recovery recently, and only after my family has passed, including my sister. Thank you, and keep working. Barb. And and thank you, Barb. Finally, we had a voicemail from Carly. Hi, Spencer. This is Carly. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon from New York. Just wanted to thank you for the episode on expectations. I actually listened to it while I had the flu. And I don't know about you, but for me, being an Al-Anon and being 
sick is really challenging. It's challenging for me to surrender to the fact that I'm sick, to cancel my schedule. And um, one thing that really helped me from listening to the expectations episode was to be able to ask for help. I'm lucky enough to live in the same city as some of my family members and also a bunch of my friends in recovery. And um, I was able to to, uh, to reach out and say I could really use some help with cleaning and laundry and stuff because I'm not feeling well. And I'll also share that it was on the same, uh, my, my illness was on the same day as a huge protest. Well, I want to share that I found it difficult to negotiate my needs around everything that's been going on. Just for me, uh, Al-Anon's been so valuable to choose self-care because I was able to, um, celebrate what I believe in, but still stay home and take care of myself. Um, and that's lowering my expectations, you know. So I'm I'm grateful to report that I'm feeling better. And uh, I want to thank you for the episode on expectations. It was really great. And keep doing what you do. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks, Carly. I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm right there understanding how I found in recovery to surrender to sickness, to recognize that I'm sick and to take the appropriate steps to take care of myself, which might mean not doing some things that I wanted to do because I just need to to take it easy to be in bed with whatever it is that I need to do to take care of the sickness. So thanks for that voicemail. A little bit of what you might call podcast news here. I don't know. Um, I recently acquired a new URL for the show that's a little shorter to type. I'm not getting rid of the recoveryshow.com. That will continue to work. But you can also now find us at therecovery.show, which is kind of cool, I think. I don't know. I get excited about this kind of stuff. I'm a little geeky that way, I guess. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses, which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Eric and David did. And thank you again, Eric and David. We have a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link in the menu at the top of the page to find them. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to therecoveryshow.com, or just listening to us. We are here for you. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.